Welcome to this Innovation Forum webinar. Uh, I'm Ian Welsh and I'll be your host for the next 45 minutes or so. So today we're going to be discussing the results from Innovation Forum's Sustainable Supply Chain Trend Survey, which we sent out to all our newsletter subscribers a few weeks ago. And many thanks to all of you that took part. We tried to design it so that it would only take a few minutes to complete while producing some interesting results. And joining me to consider these results, I'm delighted to say we have Dr. Emily Getch, who's Head of Research UK at ICAR, and Dr. Simon Lord, a supply chain expert, formerly a senior executive in the palm oil sector. Welcome to you both. I feel quite, uh, I'm obviously short of uh, a PhD, so I'm delighted to be able to get two PhDs uh, on the line and joining us today. We'll run through the results very shortly. Uh, please do use the uh, Q&A function for all your points, comments and questions. I'll bring them into our conversation. Uh, we do want to hear from everybody, so please do be thinking as we go through the results and as you hear from uh, the analysis of our panellists, thinking about any points and comments you'd like to make, uh, put them in the uh, use of the Q&A function for that. But we'd also like to offer everyone the chance to make their comments or to pose a question live in person. So if you'd like to do this, please uh, use the raise hand function uh, on, on Zoom and we will enable your audio and bring you in. Something new for us at Innovation Forum, but we're hoping this is something that uh, will be popular uh, on our webinars. Please do keep any intervention short and to the point, and I do reserve the right to enforce this. Okay, let's go back to the survey results. You should have all received the slide deck, but we'll pull these up now as we run through them. Um, I will bring in Emily and Simon for your specific thoughts a little later, but do, do please both jump in as we run through the deck if there's anything that you think we should highlight as we go. All right, our first slide. So we asked if there's a, generation, a shortage of next generation talent in sustainable supply chains, and clearly um, our survey suggested that there is uh, a bit of a shortage. We'll come into that specifically a bit later on. Uh, next slide. And we asked how we would solve the problem if there's a lack of talent. Um, training and education clearly uh, came out top. Um, other interesting points, perhaps looking at attracting diverse and under, underrepresented talents, that was interesting to see. Um, some think there's no talent shortage at all. Um, next slide. And then again, how, you're into, how our companies were addressing the lack of talent, again, training and education came out top. As I say, I'll ask Emily to comment specifically on the talent and recruitment uh, results shortly. Okay, we then asked, next slide, we had, to the extent that the organization is driving innovation and sustainability via procurement. Um, again, trend towards um, the positive side of that. I think we definitely see that here. Um, and then we asked uh, what these innovations are. The thing that jumped out for me here is uh, great to see collaboration there, responsible sourcing there, that's excellent. But something that did jump out was that uh, this very few people mentioned certification. If we'd had this survey 10 years ago, I think that certification would have come out significantly higher. So that was something that I certainly uh, was intrigued to see. We then asked about barriers to innovation that they need to overcome. Interesting to see lack of demand. That was a surprise to me. Um, the staffing element comes out, comes out again, high cost, not, not a real surprise to see there. And collaboration, theme across our results was um, the, the collaboration was important. Um, certainly see that across the different results. So we asked then what should working groups and industry bodies do to improve? And 
I thought it was really interesting here to see that, um, that certainly the biggest answer by far is being clear on measurement and success. Um, companies looking for uh, guidance as to what success looks like and how to measure it. So that's really interesting. Uh, next, we asked um, to name some of the most constructive working groups and industry bodies. That's who were named. Lots of the names you expect to see uh, were there. And then we looked at, uh, we which compare really uh, NGOs and business, um, how our audience thought that um, their awareness raising and campaigning, or sorry, campaigning awareness raising NGOs and businesses were dominated by Western-centric thinking. And uh, if we compare Q, uh, that this slide with the next one, um, there was a definite, as far as I can see, again, uh, unscientific perhaps, uh, definitely that um, our audience thinks that um, business is still too dominated by Western-centric thinking more than NGOs. Uh, perhaps not unsurprising, but it's interesting to see that result coming through. Then we, uh, obviously, EU regulation has been a big topic of comment uh, in the last, in recent months. We asked if EU regulation is running the risk of encouraging individual business action over collaborative action. Um, interestingly, the survey said 57% uh, uh, said no, which is good so that um, it's not running the risk of doing that. Um, and then we did ask uh, if yes, um, what they would suggest um, the uh, due to change it. Um, if I can we go back to question 5A, please, go back up slide. Okay, fine, thank you. Yeah, the so back to 5B, I, I thought I'd missed the, missed the slide there. But to back to 5B then, um, how to change the risk? Again, stronger regulation implement, implementation. So really implementing the regulation that we have. Don't need more regulation, we need to just implement better. That was certainly what I took from, from that. Um, then we asked optimism around technology's potential to solve supply chain problems at scale. Again, our respondents were relatively optimistic, which is nice to see. Then we asked about risks. Um, and this one here, I was surprised to see that uh, climate change is not the dominant risk. I expected climate change to be bang the biggest risk there. Um, Economic climate, something that, of course, has been uh, front and centre uh, more recently, perhaps. Um, but I was, I'd, I'd expected to see climate change uh, more dominant there. Um, we'll come back to the risks um, a little bit later on. And then in terms of opportunities, um, it was nice to see collaboration um, out there um, and also uh, use of data and technology. Perhaps not too, that's not perhaps too surprising. Some other interesting stuff there as well. Um, Climate change a very small response there, uh, and also smaller due diligence. I would have perhaps expected to see a developing a better due diligence approach, due diligence approach to be to be uh, to be more popular. And then finally, just to think about uh, the demographics of the survey, so dominated by food and agriculture, um, as you can see there, and in terms of the organisation type, again dominated by by corporates. Um, so that gives you an idea of who we had on the survey and an idea of some of their responses. Um, and uh, no doubt I've missed loads of things that uh, I should have highlighted, but that's for you, our audience, and for uh, Diana and for Simon to uh, help me pick out now. So, Emily, let me turn to you. Um, in particular, thinking around the uh, comments on the recruitment and talent slide, you know, what stood out for you here? What are the kind of key points and how have they reflected um, what you're seeing uh, in your own work? 
Yeah, I mean, it, I think there's some really interesting and important points to flag here. And just referencing the, the first slide, talking about shortage of talent, um, well, the ne next generation talent, I would go so far as to say there's also a bit of a talent shortage <laughs> at the moment. And that's not just in supply chain, but but across the board. Um, and I, I'm actually, I think there's a lot of optimism that we can have around next generation sustainable supply chain talent, because there is a lot of interest. Um, and I know education and training was touched upon in, in later slides as well. There's a lot of interest by upcoming generations, which is great. Um, I think what we need to be a little bit careful around is kind of making the supply chain aspect known. I think it's maybe not the um, the, the sexiest of areas. You know, people think about going into environmental areas or sustainability and, you know, it might be looking at, you know, cool EV engineering or um, whatever it is. Um, and I think there, there are some really interesting and rewarding opportunities in sustainable supply chain. It's incredibly important. Um, businesses are looking at this increasingly as they start to tackle scope three emissions and um, as they look at you know responsible sourcing and human rights those areas so um, I do think that th th there is a shortage of talent um, and that there's hope but we need to kind of take the actions now to make sure these areas are known um, and then th the other point that I'll, I'll make around this is that I think sustainable supply chain is often lumped in to just sustainability more broadly. Um, so if you have someone who's a head of sustainability at a business, they'll be often responsible for the supply chain aspect, or there'll be someone a bit more junior looking after that. And that that's a big ask. It's a big role. It's, again, hugely important for any business. And um, I, I think we don't always do ourselves a favor by pulling the supply chain into everything else. There needs to definitely be collaboration and, and um consideration across all aspects um but it can be sort of just a, a piece of a, a bigger picture which it is in some ways but maybe we can do more to draw attention to it and the opportunities there for business um so that would be kind of a, an initial observation around that and that raising awareness through education and training is key to bring these skills and interest into the space and in terms of the other results that um the survey threw out how do they align with the work you're seeing with your clients in terms of the way they're approaching, not just the talent recruitment, but in terms of their overall business approach? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think they're the sort of want to see measurements and, and clarity around what success looks like is, is very much on par with what we're seeing. Um, I do think businesses really want to get this right from, from an ethical perspective and also for, for a number of businesses, this can kind of get into license to operate. So it is, it is hugely important. Um, and I think that there are risks in not having the right people doing this work because you, you risk kind of getting the wrong information or kind of responding in the wrong way. Um, and I, I think, I don't know if this is the, the time to go into this, but I think in, in terms of just overall talent, there is a huge demand on people who know this stuff. There's more people coming into it. Um, but I think thinking a bit laterally about professionals in the space and which skills are transferable, you know, can people move across different sectors that have already looked at um, sustainable supply chain? For example, fashion is probably a little bit ahead of a lot of industries. Can we bring people from that sector into another? Um, those are all kind of 
key considerations that are are coming up. Um, and I think it's kind of thinking about things in a creative way um, and really selling that to the market. Um, so it's it's a candidate's market and it probably has been for two or three years now. Um, so I think businesses need to show their commitment to the space to attract that talent. Um, there's, you know, competitive salaries and packages are great, but candidates are really looking for, I guess, investment um, from a, a sort of, you know, both heart and mind perspective. Um, so that's another trend that we're seeing. And I think that's very much reflected in these results. Sure. Well, let's come back to some of those skill transfer issues a little bit later, perhaps. Um, I mean, we actually included the talent and recruitment um, questions. That was something that was came up at our in-person events last end of last year. Mm. A lot of people were, we were asking people about, you know, what we should include in a survey. And that was something that a lot of people mentioned that they just didn't feel that the talent was coming through and that they were, you know, struggling to find the right people. So that's why I was there. And interesting to hear your your reflections on that. Um, thank you. Well, Simon, let me turn to you. Um, delighted to see you got the check shirt and zip jumper memo. Um, always the right, always smartly dressed. Uh, but thanks very much indeed for, for joining us. Um, can you reflect a little bit on what you see coming out of our survey results, the things that perhaps surprised you, things that... Um, perhaps were just what you expected to see. So give us some reflections on your your thoughts on the survey. Well, thank you for your comments on my sartorial elegance. Uh, I am wearing my COVID pyjamas underneath, so hey, what? Uh, yeah, I want to take the Coldplay approach, go back to the beginning again, slide 1A. Um, I come from an agricultural supply chain background, and I guess that colours. I think for me, there are uh, six aspects challenges and we all know that the opportunities reside within them it's about basically the resources that you operate on the land or water it's about your emissions it's about how you treat people so exploitation about the integrity often the food integrity and of course it's about the circularity of, of your business the sixth one is i think the flair that illuminates the other issues that are faced in supply chains, and that is traceability. Without it, uh, all of those other issues can exist, but you're not going to know whether they exist because you don't know where it comes from. And I guess that's my main point to start with, is that I don't think there's issues in the supply chain itself. It's not the chain that's the issue, it's the origin. And when you come down to look at the questions like is there talent missing is it visible is there a gap in it i think there is a gap in terms of people who can go down onto the ground and fix these problems i mean you look around at the various courses at the universities i, I represent some of them and <clears throat> there is no school of supply chain which doesn't really look at anything other than how we can use technology how we can use imaging, artificial intelligence, blockchain, to actually trace, which is fundamental, but not actually how you then fix the problems. And as long as there are going to be temperate countries that require tropical products, then there is going to be a chain, and that means going back down into those countries and looking at the issues. And with, with all of this technology, it identifies where there is a problem, it doesn't identify how to address that problem. And so I think perhaps many of the companies on this, on this 
webinar. They've done what I would call tactical sustainability. They have the policies, often an NDPE. They've got their must traceability systems. Some of them are absolutely you, Butte and Uber. They've got responsible sourcing guidelines, which gives you the do's and don'ts. And um, they've often then narrowed their supply base as much as possible, cutting out the rogues, keeping in the saints, and of course, ongoing monitoring. But to me, that, that's, that's a tactical thinking, and we need to have a shift. And in that shift into a more strategic way of approach, then I think companies need to actually look at this gap in terms of people that can do something on the ground. And for me, you know, it's, it's about mitigation. It's about how you co-create solutions on the ground and the uplift that generates. And for many, I think it's, it's in the too hard basket. Or we put all our efforts into a handful of small farmers, which are an important part. I represent them as well in the supply chain, but they are not just the only players and in, indeed unlikely to be needle changing in the work that you do. It will, however, be lifestyle and livelihood changing. So for me, we have too much of a reliance in our origin of our supply chain on basically uh, NGOs um, because there is no one else, because most companies do not have either uh, ecologists or sociologists who are able to go and fix those problems so we outsource it into someone else and then when you look around about the case studies and the practical knowledge there's not enough sharing of those in academic institutes so that what you get is a very very uh, academic approach to things which tends to be a little bit um, top heavy and very bottom line so that that would be my first comment to make i've got loads of others not least to get my own back on you uh, with that comment about my dress. <laughs> Fair enough. I deserve it. Um, I, was, I wanted to ask you, Simon, about um, the, I thought it was quite interesting, uh, juxtaposition in the results here. The fact that um, certification got a very uh, yeah. low response, but what businesses wanted from um, working groups, industry bodies, is to be clear on measurement and success, because surely... And certainly in the past, you'd think, well, certification is your way to measure yourself and, 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 and to, to, to measure success. Do you have any sense as to why that might be? Uh, I don't know. I was puzzled when I saw it. You're talking about question 3A, for those that have got it in front of them, where you clear on measurement and success. And there was, you know, quite a large number, 40% of, of your survey. And to me, I thought that the role of standards was to put in place a mechanism, a way of verifying, um, a way of monitoring, verifying and reporting on what success defined through the standard looked like on the ground. I mean, I was involved in the RSPO, I've been involved in the Rainforest Alliance and quite a number of other standards, including the POIG, the Palm Oil Innovation Groups. And the idea was to actually uh, strive for the top, a race to the top, not a pull-up from the bottom. And so I was su really surprised when I saw it in such small writing uh, that you've actually got certification because I don't know how you're going to measure success on the ground if you've not got some kind of monitoring and verification process in place. It, Global Reporting Index, 
the, the spot and zoological society, great, great ranking system, by the way, um, doesn't actually provide solutions and doesn't give you a measure of how successful those solutions. And there was a while ago that everybody was on about impacts. You know, we have to have impacts. Our API have to have impacts. And I think we've lost sight of that. So I was, I was quite surprised when you looked at that. And then also when you looked at your question 5A, which was about uh, EU regulations running the risk of encouraging individual business actions over collaborative approaches. If you look at that question in a slightly different way, um, people answered it as overwhelmingly, uh, well, perhaps not overwhelmingly, of saying, no, we don't think that is the case. Um, it is quite prescriptive. And you run the problem of having, if you like, government regulations or indeed stock exchanges being quite prescriptive on what you should be measuring, but not necessarily taking into account whether those measurements are indeed counting or whether what you're counting can indeed be measured. Thanks very much. Uh, so as I said um, at, the top, at the top of the hour, please do be putting your points, questions, anything you'd like to put at all into the Q&A box, and we will, of course, come to that. Um, I also asked for um, offer the opportunity for anybody to, who wants to come in live uh, to join us. And we did have uh, uh, someone just raised their hand. Um, it was Gwyn Foster. So, Gwyn, we'll meet you live now, and um, please make your, your question. Super, I want to pick up on traceability that Simon Lord has just been commenting on, and on standards. I specialise in traceability through the value chains. A lot of my focus at present is, or generally is, ground level, not only traceability control points all the way through, and the implications of um, technology such as blockchain and contracts and all the rest of it. But what we are seeing in the agricultural space is a change in the standards where it is moving more to an outcomes-based approach from a tick box audit approach. And that is going to, the reason for that obviously, and it comes back to saying, what is the data that we are looking at? The data comes from ground level. It's no longer appropriate to pick up at your first commercial point and ask for historic stuff. So standardized identity is key, but so is acknowledging that every farm, every community, every area is different and unique. And therefore what is relevant to them might be different to a farm over the hill. That means that we need to evolve those skills at ground level and our auditors need to change from a tick box right wrong score story to an understanding and acceptance of what the standard is that has been set and that is going to create huge jobs at ground level um, the standardization is key and at present we've got standards all over even within the various standards bodies gs1 the global standard system seems to be coming through strongly Global Gap uses that. But the fact that we need to say my code, your code, my standard, your standard, my technology, your technology is going to be key. So thank you. I just wanted to add on to what Simon Lord had said. Thanks, Gwen. And just tell us who you're, who you're with. I, I operate as an independent. Um, I've been involved in agricultural supply chains for a long time. And I'm now focusing on um, education programs 
to share my experience because things are changing so fast. I don't pretend to be an expert. I will learn with the people on the ground. So that's where we are. Thank you, Gwyn. Really appreciate it. Um, can, I ask, great point can, I ask, can I ask Gwyn a question? She's on uh, the line. Sure. So, yeah, okay. Sure. Why not? Hi, Gwyn. I, <laughs> I agree with everything you said. Hey, do you think if question 1A was asked whether there is a shortage for the next generation of talent in auditors, Oh, absolutely. We would have got the auditors, same answer. In absolutely every aspect, because the education system generally is not catering for where we are now. So there's a whole plethora of, um, of learning, of opportunity. The auditors are still very strongly um, command and control, arrogant tick box. And that is going to have to change. It's a wonderful opportunity for youth. It's a wonderful opportunity for people in the field. And even if we come to measuring the data, um, we've got situations where youngsters in the field can get drone, their drone pilot license. They don't have to control the data setup, the data stream, the data management. So we need to change our approach and see the opportunities Tremendous. Um, the other consideration there is understanding the control. So we come into the data integrity. That's a whole new set of jobs. Because with everything that is happening, there's so much rubbish going on that you have no idea whether you're dealing with the person or whether things are being manipulated and so on. So I, I, see, I see a lot of opportunity, and that's where my focus is. <clears throat> I like you already. <laughs> this might be a... I'd love to pick it up. <laughs> thank you. No, that's brilliant. Thank you so much for your intervention. So, so Simon, perhaps I can just turn to you then. I mean, do you, I mean, this leads on from what we were talking about earlier, do you see the need for thinking about if you're going to use standards, if you're going to use that, that approach, it needs to be uh, very much specific for an individual farm. You need to think about how, you know, for it to be useful, you need to think about how it is reflected in the individual um, aspect. And, and Emily, I'll come to you in a sec about the specific recruitment issue. Mm. Yeah. Um, Taylor making it for every individual, and they are individuals. I mean, behind every number, uh, there's a narrative. Behind every you know dot on the map that's a small farmer, for example, or a small medium enterprise, they're actually a group of people and they have wants and needs and, and we don't always understand. I, th I think if, for example, the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil had got it right for smallholders, they would be beating a path to its door. But at the moment, they can't see that value in certification. And that's not the case. And I know they're, they're looking at that and revising it through. But I think that there is a problem uh, with, with the actual certification. And I think one of the root causes is being this, this auditor issue um, and the inability to look at the particular circumstances or indeed the flexibility of the standard to interpret what the spirit is uh, in a way that is meaningful for a different location. Countries are different, provinces are different, uh, sectors are very, very different. Whether you're looking at in, in the Pacific, in Africa or in the ASEAN. And so we don't reflect that. And as a result, that's why go back to your first question a while ago, why has certification seemed to be losing ground? It's because I don't think it has kept pace 
with what it needed to happen. And I used to have big arguments with the um, Scott Poynton of the Earthworm Foundation, or it was TFT in those days, when they would say we have to go beyond certification. And I guess my argument was always we have it's about certification and beyond. And the building block is certification. I think what we need to do is now go beyond that. Thanks. Thanks, Simon. Emily, I wonder if you wanted to comment on the specific point around re recruiting um, the right people on the ground. I mean, Simon made this point earlier around, you know, the whilst the, all this focus on technology and, 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 and everything else uh, and solutions that are tech-based, we need, there's been a, perhaps a, a, um, a lack or a, a lessening of the requirement or the need for, recognising the need for people on the ground with the right sort of talents. Auditors being an example that, uh, that Gwyn mentioned just now. Yeah, I mean, I can can only agree. I think th there's a sort of fundamental challenge in just that not being maybe such a, a recognized profession. And I think there is something, you know, whether it's in supply chain schools or other disciplines, introducing these topics um, and kind of explaining what the opportunities are. Um, and I was actually going to flag, it's interesting, we're working with a couple of clients at the moment that are tech businesses. And um, one of the things that they're looking at is how to kind of translate the the language of farming, as it were, what's happening on the ground to businesses. So they're looking for people who can kind of bridge that gap. And I think there definitely is a lack of people sort of on the ground looking at these areas, but up the, the sort of chain and maybe a supply chain discussion isn't the best place to use that word. But um, I guess, you know, in terms of... Um, employees that presents challenges as you go to kind of communicate with different bodies and in terms of technology there, there is a disconnect so I think um, th those are all things that need to be considered to make the the softwares work the technologies work um, and at, at a ground level I think th those aren't necessarily the areas that people are training for and they might not even know that those opportunities exist and that makes it very challenging um, to, to hire for and also very expensive as well and I, I do wonder if there's you know the opportunity for businesses I know again training and education was flagged a few times in the survey but would there actually be benefit to businesses putting on courses or introducing those areas to kind of give opportunities to introduce those those areas to up-and-coming students who are interested or, or or whoever it may be or people within their business who might be able to translate their skills um there could be a huge amount of value in that for employers. Um, but absolutely, I think on the ground um, is is challenging and it's it, it probably needs to be addressed. Sure. Okay, I've, thanks very much, Emily. Simon, do you want to come back on that? Yeah, just very quickly, a, a point. I've, I've often wondered, I don't know whether the audience has got any comments or insights onto it, as to whether the, the role of supply chain procurement, um, not the quality aspects, Chain, but the environmental and social aspect, whether that role has actually been designed within companies or whether it's been assigned. And therefore, you know, there's not been a lot of thought put as to the type of quality or skill set needed for people to, to duck dive and go down through the, uh, not duck dive, go deep dive uh, down through the supply chain. So I'm just wondering what the audience thought about whether that is a general case that it's not a designed role, it's an assigned role, and perhaps we don't have the skill set in-house to actually meet that. And therefore, that would beg the question, well, where do you go then to get all this education and training? 
what's the best way? And can the industry come together? Is this a pre-competitive collaboration situation? Although perhaps that word's fallen out of favour. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Simon. Uh, Mary Johnson, I know you've raised your hand. I will turn to you in a second. I just wanted to bring in a point that is relevant to the, what we're discussing right now um, from, uh, from Henk. Uh, he's um, contending with the point around um, the, the statement that uh, you know, all problems are on the ground on origin um, and rather su suggesting that um, many producers want to change but they can't afford to do so because of the way that current market logistic or market logics rather squeeze the profit. So they know that there's a problem on the ground. I guess the, the, maybe the point there is really, it's, the, it's, the, it's a realisation that the resources are required on the ground and that perhaps the producers can solve the problems, but it's more a question of having the resources there for, to enable them to do so. Do you want me to comment on that? Sure, please. <clears throat> well, yes, um, it's not about whether the producers know there's a problem, it's whether or not where those problems exist. And, and, and in, in framing that answer to the question, he's absolutely right. There are problems on the ground and in supply chains, it tends to be the origins of where the product comes from. Whether people are aware of it or not, or whether they choose to ignore it or not, I think that's a slightly different question and not brought out in, in this actual survey. But yeah, I would broadly agree with him. There's, in my experience, that there is an acknowledgement and a will to change, but the barriers there are not the same barriers in this survey. There are other barriers, and one is the, the resource. Agriculturists are not necessarily conservationists. Um, production managers, um, plantation managers, farm managers are not necessarily sociologists. And therefore, how do we equip them with the skills? And most companies, again, go to basically NGOs that do seem to have uh, those skills available. And not all NGOs are as constructive as they could be of a more boycott um, uh, attitude. Um, but for those that are constructive, then there is a possibility of tapping into that skill set and resources. But wouldn't the industry do better actually have a cadre of people who, who could actually help and work with in a co-creative way? Because the producers are players in a supply chain and the other players perhaps could have collective responsibility to actually try and put the resources in that assist them in fixing these problems. So I would say, yes, I totally agree with him, but we'll add that coming. Okay, thanks very much, uh, Simon. Now, may, let me turn to Mary Johnson. We actually put out, uh, out a note earlier in the week asking for anyone who wants to uh, ask a question, make a point live to, to let us know. Mary, thanks very much for getting in touch. Uh, Mary is the CEO of uh, Regenerative Farms, um, and I... I Interestingly enough, I thought, looking at our, um, our opportunities uh, question, I thought that regenerative agriculture may have come out a little bit higher in the terms of the number of responses, because it's something that everybody is talking about. Anyway, Mary, uh, let me turn to you. Thanks for joining us. Um, make, your, make your comments now, please. Sure, thank you. So uh, I really appreciate the data and the time it took to go into this um, and the, the chance for this group to put their comments out. So I'm really interested in hearing from those who are on the line, seeing how so many are in the food and agriculture space. Um, really what Simon alluded to is sort of what are the solutions? What are the trends and solutions that companies in particular are working on in 2023? 
Um, I think, you know, in, in question two, B and C, you see a bit of kind of what's going on in the big picture of things is we're at this time in history where we haven't had to think and act in the same way with the urgency of multiple calamities headed at companies all at the same time. And I think your, your earlier comment um, that the staff that are making these decisions and have so much responsibility aren't always coming from the, the trade where sort of big, pic big picture ecological thinking and solutions was their, their training. And so this, this place that we're in in history is, is unprecedented and there needs to be, in my opinion, a lot more thinking done sort of across companies from C-suite through procurement, through sustainability um, and outside with these other collaborations on that solutioning process because we're trying to tackle these problems that are coming at us now that are beyond one company being able to just make a shift in what they're sourcing or reformulate their product. These, these big hits that are coming year after year to the many of the industries and now with the also the transport and um, the pandemic related things. In my mind, many of these fall under climate change and they're only going to get worse. And I think there's a lot of sort of ostriches with the head in the sand, just that's too much for us to figure out. We're just gonna kind of keep going with the sustainability checklists and just keep doing what we can do because we don't know how to solve these things. But I'd love to hear if the audience um, has solutions that they're, they're seeing that are really working and people that they're collaborating with kind of across these boundaries of getting that um, lack of funding and investment happening, the sufficient knowledge filtering up from NGOs or those who do have it on the ground into companies and kind of getting outside of the box. I know each company has their limitations on what they can do. And, and then that's sort of where they stop. And there's not necessarily those bridges and the funding in place to get to the next mile where the solutions are actually happening on the ground. Mary, thanks very much indeed. And thank you very much for, for your points. Simon, do you want to comment on that? Uh, I, I'm a big supporter of regenerative agriculture because I, I only think, I think that's the only way that farming is going to become resilient. Um, I always look at the, I, what I think are six aspects that, that really are the principles of regenerative or eco-agriculture, if you like. And, and that is climate change inversion, uh, healthy soils, both quality and quantity, water stewardship, um, biodiversity and addressing the devastating loss. But it's also, I think, about livelihoods and the livelihoods of, of people within an organisation, the livelihoods of the farmers and the communities that surround those. And it's also uh, about yields. And there are very few people who have skill set in each of those six areas inside of companies and there's very few people who are the correct wizards to actually advise companies on on those six aspects of where they go forward so again i think we have a a bit of a a talent gap there so emily you've got a big job to do because you've got to fill that one as well is that the we don't have those skills there are individuals who you know just shine out knowledgeable and knowing what they're doing but on the whole the companies that really need to be doing this as part of a supply chain as part of a realistic supply chain for the future and that skill set's not there and we see a lot of big companies and 
putting a lot of, of emphasis on regenerative agriculture and the way forward. I would like to see a lot of that more translated into the provision of resources. And it's not just money necessary, but the provision of resources on how to and how to actually make it scalable. Because unless it is scalable, I think we're in for a very bleak future for my grandchildren and indeed their children. Emily, do you want to comment on the kind of resource allocation? Are you seeing um, through your, you know, in your clients, the kind of an appetite for addressing skill shortages uh, along the lines of, you know, the Simon is saying there, I mean, are you seeing this as something that is being recognised? Are you seeing a trend towards um, more resources going into the right sort of uh, education? In full transparency, not that often. Um, I think there's the, and I think this is kind of dovetailing on what Simon's saying, there's sort of this immediate, um, and, and what Mary's saying, this is kind of immediate, like we need to do something, but we don't know how to do it. So um, they're, they're hiring people, which is good and important, and they need to have they businesses need to have that in place or other organizations but um i think the the challenge is so big and the call to action is so immediate and quick that the focus is really on trying to get people to do what we need to do in the moment and i think it is really challenging to look down the line and um, commit that resource to the, the training and education so we do occasionally see that happening um it would be amazing to see it more often. Um, and I, I think that will happen. I hope that will happen. Um, but I think the, the world is still in a little bit of a shock by how great the, the challenge is. Just in the last couple of years, I think people's eyes have really been opened. And, um, you know, we're probably preaching to the choir here with this audience who've, who've known about these issues for a long time. Um, but that doesn't mean that a lot of CEOs have been aware of it. So um, I, I wish I could say yes, but I think that might be a next step <laughs> in, in what businesses are doing. Sure. Okay. Thanks, Emily. I wanted to bring in uh, a question um, which looked at some of the risks. Uh, we also asked about the top three risks for organizations. And uh, Marcelo um, made a very good point around biodiversity loss. It didn't appear. It was. It certainly was a surprise that it did not appear as, as a result. Marcelo, I noticed that you did raise your hand. Would you like to come in now and uh, make any further comments? Okay. Thanks. Yes. Um, my name is Marcelo. I work for GIZ and an initiative on sustainable agricultural supply chains. And yes, I had this question um, whether the survey through the questions itself uh, captured uh, biodiversity loss or if it then uh, was reflected in the answers uh, to the survey. Um, not only because last year and this year, um, biodiversity is quite high up in the international agenda, but also because, as we all know, um, consumption patterns also affect uh, production um, elsewhere. Um, so um, this biodiversity footprint um, debate is, is coming up more and more and 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 um, corporates are key uh, in in um, helping us uh, solve and move towards um, perhaps a more diversified production system um, so in that sense um, the question was um, if and how biodiversity laws featured as a risk 
Well, um, yes, thank you, Marcelo. Um, it, we didn't we, we didn't specifically try to capture any particular answer. We asked the question just simply, what are the risks? And we were surprised, in fact, when we came back and biodiversity wasn't mentioned. Certainly, it is a massive, uh, massive risk, obviously. Um, and it was something that I was we were surprised weren't there, um, wasn't there. Um, perhaps you can talk a little bit about some of the risks. Uh, I mean, I mentioned in my um, brief summary uh, earlier on that um, I'd expect to see climate change a little bit uh, more to the fore. Um, Simon, I know that you've been um, looking at the uh, latest global risk survey from uh, World Economic Foundation. Um, what does that reflect or how, how does the results from that uh, compare with what we've got here? Uh, yeah, I was looking at it for, well, since uh, the top five, uh, since about 2014. And what you see is biodiversity loss, um, climate change, uh, sorry, climate action failure, um, environmental degradation, and extreme weather events. If, if, I know the definitions have slightly changed over the years. Um, slowly but surely. Uh, occupying the top positions. Uh, this year, uh, the report comes out. It's the World Economic Forum's Global Risk Report. It, it, it comes out in, in 2022. I've just been looking at that. And there we have um, climate action failure as, as the biggest, biodiversity loss, uh, extreme weather, and then loss of social uh, cohesion, and I think impacts on livelihoods. Now, you can argue that the loss of social cohesion and on livelihoods in part is due to perhaps mitigation and adaptation necessary for change to climate and the warming of the planet. Um, there will be other factors. There's certainly when you look at the Endelman Trust, uh, erosion of, of trust and a worry by people on, on basically uh, their spending. And when you look at W, uh, GWI's uh, take on changes in, in spending habits over the internet and the use of the internet. There's a decline in, in terms of, of trusting the internet as a source of information. And indeed, there seems to be a crossover point where people are willing to sacrifice um, products that have an, um, a message to them. Uh, this was environmental only, not social, um, but have a, an environmental message to them they're willing to sacrifice that in terms of the best bargain and and that perhaps is reflective in the countries that they looked at of inflation and perhaps why economic climate appeared so much in heavy bold uh, type in your surveys because it was about the economic climate so like the the caller like marcelo i'm i'm surprised like you i'm surprised because you know, I remember back in, in what, 2021, uh, you know, there's a cartoon that I've used many times, which, which shows the four big tsunamis in the world. Um, COVID in the one in front foremost, because it was in front of everybody. Behind that, and you could still see it, that's why I like the cartoon, was the recession that was going to come afterwards, as we work out who the hell pays for our COVID actions, didn't eat other things. Such as in the UK, Brexit, um, lots of heavy goods drivers, uh, and indeed the Ukrainian war and its impact on fuel. Behind that tsunami, the third was climate change, all visible, by the way, from the person on the beach. And behind that, the biggest of all, 
is is catastrophic biodiversity loss. So I was surprised that that didn't feature. Um, it should be a feature of regenerative agriculture. Um, it was a feature of conservation many years ago, um, but that tended to be focusing on iconic species. I think now it's broader soil biodiversity as well as ground biodiversity is equally important in people's thinking. And in fact, some people's thinking even more important. And yet, you know, very few people are measuring it because you can't see it. You think you can, but you can't. And, and there's a, a consequence to that is that it's not attracted a lot of attention, uh, a lot of resources, and perhaps it's, it's slightly uh, gone out of focus for a lot of people, certainly in this, this questionnaire. Great. No, thank you. Thank you, Simon. Very good points. Um, well made. Um, I'd like to bring in, um, I'd like to bring in, if I may, uh, Pamela Greet, um, who uh, also sent in some, uh, some questions. Um, I know that Pamela's joining from uh, Australia. Time differences would be a bit challenging, but it's great to see that Pamela is on the, on, is on the call. So Pamela, if you could, if we, perhaps if um, my colleagues could bring Pamela in now. Yes, you are. Pamela, joining us. Please make your comments, and if you have a question for our, our panel, please make it now. Thank you so much for that. It's been fascinating um, listening to the discussion. Uh, just checking that you can hear me okay? Yeah, we can. Thank you, Pamela. Thank you. So, um, yes, I'm joining from Australia, and I guess um, my questions, having had a look at the slides and the outcome, I guess I was really interested. I'm going to focus on the, the notion that if you don't count it, it doesn't count. And I think um, Simon and Emily, this really goes to that, that um, theme that you've just been discussing about biodiversity and um, what we have. So, you know, baselines I think are so important, but also so that we can measure progress or or the reverse of that. Um, so, yes, I, I guess I was um, thinking about the need for that in order to map change and then how, how we actually articulate and define what we mean when we talk about sustainability because I didn't actually see that defined anywhere. And... That's something that's a huge debate in the regen ag space in Australia at the moment, those, those questions of definitions, because, of course, regen agriculture, as you would know, is a massive umbrella that has so many different kind of circus acts ha happening under that tent. So, yes, that, that I'll, I'll leave it at that for my questions. Thanks so much, Ian, for including me. No, thank, thank you, Pamela. Thanks very much for joining us. I think it's a great point around definitions. And also, this is something we've been thinking about at the Innovation Forum around, um, you know, the challenges for people in supply chains having to deal with so many different types of definitions, different companies ask for different things, different types of data sets, and bring it all together. And it's really, really challenging. Um, I'll ask our panel to think about that. I'd like to bring in Christina Tharashini, who uh, also would like to join us. Christina? Yeah, hi. Hi, Ian, Simon. And hi, Emily. Christina. Um, it's a very constructive discussion um, this uh, today. Okay, my question is, when we are talking about climate 
um, climate uh, change, what exactly that we are looking into. And, and uh, let's not talk about, um, you know, uh, the increasing methane gases in our atmosphere. Um, yeah, so are we looking into addressing this particular gas or are we, I mean, what are the approach that we're actually taking into uh, addressing this increasing gas, especially this methane gas in our atmosphere? And my second question is, what are the skill set that is currently in demand for um, to to uh, to find a solution to this problem? Great, well, thank you very much indeed. Um, not sure if either of our panelists would want to comment particularly on on greenhouse gas mitigation or, or methane, other than perhaps it's it clearly something that needs to be addressed and addressed at scale. But I'm interested, perhaps Emily, don't address the skill set question. Is this something you're seeing? are specifically looking for the skills that can deal with these issues? Um, I mean, definitely. And I think um, we've sort of alluded to this carbon and, and well, greenhouse gases more broadly have been probably at the forefront of concern for business. I mean, there are huge regulations coming in around that and, and in relation to, to global warming, et cetera. Um, and so in terms of skill sets, I mean, it's really broad. Everyone, every everything from um, reporting on on those levels to engineers looking at technologies that can um, well either reduce emissions or you know take carbon or methane out of the atmosphere. Um, I've we, we've worked with companies that are looking at um, reducing cow flatulence, for example. So there's I think a huge range of of roles in that area, whether you're a chemist, an engineer. Um, I think the communication around this is increasingly important and we're seeing a, a lot of businesses investing in that because the message is so important and in a lot of instances that's how you kind of bring people along and maybe gain investors and gain interest in what you're doing. Um, so that's a little bit of a cop-out answer but, but I think the the skill sets are really wide-ranging and again it's, it is a, such a massive problem that it sort of takes all sorts to figure it out. Um, so whether you're kind of looking at it from a scientific background, or I also really believe that if that's an area of interest for you, there are roles within those businesses that you can take on um, to address those issues. Um, is that Does that answer at all? No, it does indeed. <laughs> so, I, I, yeah. The thought of having a specific skill set point in a CV saying uh, mitigating cow, cow flatulence, mm. that's a kind of <laughs> something we need to see more of on CVs for sure. Uh, Simon, I wonder if you could address the point around definitions that um, that Pamela raised, really interesting one. Um, yep. You know, dealing with companies that are on, on the ground, uh, uh, producing communities, having to deal with so many different definitions around standards and everything else. I mean, it almost feels like it's the kind of the new audit fatigue. It's a thing that audit fatigue has developed into in many respects. Yeah, well, just quickly, just touch on Christina's, because the, the oil palm industry that I've worked with most, um, methane is the, the most critical greenhouse gas it's produced. But when the oil, oil palm fruit is actually processed, it's crushed, it's organic matter being released anaerobically. Um, and you can be joining the methane pledge, which came out of the COP meetings. Um, most of the oil palm industry, they're on a trajectory to net zero, uh, to halve by 2030 and zero by 2050, are actually taking huge steps at capturing of this gas and using it to convert into electricity. So that's just a quick answer for Christine. Um, Pamela's question, yeah, I think it was Vardigam University 
that analysed, I think, 291 research papers that mentioned regenerative agriculture. This was a couple of years ago uh, that I remember the data on. And they, they could find no common threads. They identified four themes, but no common principles when people were talking about regenerative And those <coughs> principles were, I covered four, I covered six, but I covered four of them. And that was um, climate change inversion, soils, management, if you like, uh, water stewardship and biodiversity conservation and protection. When you looked at the companies, and I looked at the global companies working in in my sector, then every single one was actually working on livelihood strategies at a small scale, uh, albeit in some cases. And therefore, I think that livelihoods has to be a feature of, of any regen system. And then because a lot of regen system is is really trying to introduce circularity, high potential circularity in agriculture, and then there has to be attention paid to yield and how we address the yield gap that's the WRI have for years been identifying population increases to 10 billion. The time isn't ready yet for a round table on regenerative agriculture, I don't think, in terms of a standard, because I don't think we're there yet. I think in terms of guidance and what to agree and what would be the principles, we can go back to 2002. That was how the round table on sustainable palm oil started. I was asking the question, what are the principles on which sustainable oil palm are based? And I think it would be very good for collaborative work on what is the principles or what are the principles of regenerative agriculture. What then would be the criteria that you would put in place to, to think about those? But that would be a few steps before you actually then started saying, well, what would be the indicators of it? You say creating a, you know, a Modify my language, uh, auditors. Um, yes, I, don't, I okay. think as your first comment said, we don't want tick and ball, and this is what it will become if we're not. Sure. Look, I'm afraid we're going to have to draw things oh. to close. We have run out of time. Many, many thanks to Simon and to Emily for joining us today for your insights. Been fascinating conversation, and thank you very much to everyone else, the audience, for all your questions. We plan to make our surveys a more regular feature, so please do get in touch if you have any comments on the survey and um, any things you think we should include in the next one. If you'd like to partner with us on our surveys in the future, please also do get in touch. Do look out for more analysis, of course, at the Innovation Forum website as ever. But that's all for now. Goodbye. <laughs>